I do my show on the Heritage Radio Network because I think it's important to talk about the impact of technology on our lives. I do my show to reach home cooks and help them do better. I love getting together with people in the industry. I like hosting my show because to me, it's the stories about people and their relationship to food that help make the food more interesting and more delicious. Our hosts do their shows as a labor of love, but we still need your financial support in order to keep the lights on and keep the tape rolling. Please become a member today at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. For more information, visit mofad.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Sharp and Hot. I am your host, Chef Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I have managed somehow to pull the microphone off the stand. David is coming in to rescue me. I tried to screw it back in myself, but I didn't know what I was doing. It's probably making a great sound on the air right now. This is like, this is fourth wall shit, man. I tried that, but it kept falling off the bottom. Sausage is made. See, it's just going down. It's not. It's okay. I can just hold it. Okay. I mean, it's heavier than I thought it was going to be. We're just going to switch. This is this is radio gold right here. Right. This is how it happens. All of you aspiring food podcasters and radio people out there, just know that this is how the magic happens. Okay, welcome to episode number 139 of Sharp and Hot on Heritage Radio Network. I'm not sure what I said already because I was focused on the, like, 10-pound microphone in my hand. I think that's as far as we got. That's as far as we got. Okay, I am your host, Emily Peterson, broadcasting to you live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Before we went on air, David, the engineer who has just rescued me, we were talking about how it has cooled off significantly in New York City. It suddenly is starting to feel almost autumnal, which I'm not quite ready for because that means back to school and back to work. And my husband reminded me that we did have the entire month of August to get through. But there's something nice about August. I feel like August is a month of rest and enjoying your time off and your travel if you have the opportunity to do it. Um, I have been spending my days while my kid is at preschool watching Stranger Things on Netflix. Now, I'm a little bit late to the game, and I know everyone who's anyone in media and pop culture has already talked about this, but I haven't been... This show is the best kind of scary I can possibly describe for my personality type. Like, it's... I don't like blood and gore. I'm reading the Game of Thrones books, as you guys know, but I'm not thrilled about watching people get mutilated on screen. But this... Story. It's like the scariest episodes of The X-Files meets Twin Peaks with a focus on kids and their parents and their grown-ups. And it's particularly fascinating to me because it's one of the first episodic pieces of television that I find myself associating more with the parents than the kids. Which makes me think that I am officially grown up. Um, <laughs> but if you have Netflix and you have heard the buzz or you have never heard of Stranger Things and you like being scared, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, we tried to look and see what the guys who are behind it 
did prior, but they just have like a couple of indie films to their credit. And so I'm hoping that maybe Netflix is investing in some lesser known people instead of hiring Michael Bay to make a Netflix specific piece of entertainment, give other people a platform. I've watched it in the middle of the day because my kid's not home. It's not appropriate for watching, even if your toddler's not paying attention. There's a lot of loud noises and things, but I had to like pick my feet up and sit crisscross applesauce on the couch because I was convinced something was going to grab my ankles from under the couch. It's like creepy and uh, I just love it. And I can't stop. It's like taken over my real life, which I think is a sign that it's something that I really enjoy. Okay. So that being said, in my real life, a week from yesterday, my brand new flock of baby chicks are going to be delivered. I'm very excited. Um, I'm not quite ready. I think it's like getting any new pet or new baby. You kind of wait until the, I mean, I'm just, I'll use myself. I kind of wait until the last minute when I don't have a choice. I'm like, oh, right. I got to find the water and I got to find the light thing. And I got to raise these birds for another 12 weeks so that I can go through the process of creating my own food from scratch all over again. And I'm thrilled to welcome my guest to the show because she is a food writer for Vice and Time Magazine. And she has written a book about the history of my favorite bird and America's favorite bird called Tastes Like Chicken. Emmeline Rude, welcome to Sharp and Hot. Hello. <laughs> nice to be here. It's so great to have you. Uh, now, first, first, you know, most important things first. Are you watching Stranger Things? I have been told to watch it. I haven't yet. All right. Add me Hit to that list of people because it's, it, I can't stop thinking about her talking about it. And my <laughs> husband and I are like off sync because he'll watch it after my kid goes to sleep. And so I need somebody to talk to about it. But Oh. Sorry. Next time. <laughs> That's okay. We can talk about my favorite bird. So you open the book with sort of a confession that you, in fact, don't eat chicken. Yeah, I, I'm not a big fan, and I've never been a big fan my entire life. For some reason, I've just never liked eating chicken. <laughs> so as a topic, how did you come upon it, and then how did it keep your attention for writing this whole story? Well, I, this book actually started as my senior thesis in college. Um, I studied social theory. Clearly, I'm very employable. Um, <laughs> and I've always loved eating, so I wanted to write about food. And I remember one day going to this really old professor's office, and he just made some offhand comment about that chickens were an incredible piece of technology. And that sort of just sparked my interest and I kept researching and it's actually a crazy <laughs> a crazy little story of food history so it is now a book how does it feel to hold it in your hand and know uh, can I ask you how many years have passed since that conversation and the publication date of the book since that conversation that was I think five or six so a long time yeah it's a labor of love. Um, yes, and both your parents, did you, in the book, you say they're uh, ec agricultural economists, right? Yeah, my parents, they both used, they're retired now, but they both work, used to work for the USDA. So, so around um, the dinner table, was that something, do you, do you look back on that now and think, oh, yeah, I can connect the dots of how I ended up writing a food history book about chicken? Sort of. I think it's more, my mom just loved food. She gets so excited. She never cooks, but she just loves watching the Food Network. She just loves everything about it, which I guess is why she took the job she did. <laughs> so just she's just so excited at all time when it comes to food, and I think I sort of was infected by that. 
So let's talk a little bit about the structure of the book because you walk us through time and each uh, uh, chapter, excuse me, each chapter is sort of anchored by these historical recipes that I find absolutely fascinating to read because from a recipe writing standpoint, they're incredibly vague. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So tell I, me I some stumbled about across these. A, actually, this is unrelated. A recipe from, I think it was like 15th century France. That just t- the directions for cooking the chicken were the time it took to walk between a certain place and a mountain and back. And that was the direction. <laughs> I I love this idea because I think we take for granted. I think we take many things for granted in modern cooking and modern cookery, um, but how much work goes into testing recipes. And if we think about even just literacy and the literacy level of people who were responsible for doing the cooking in houses in the yeah. you know that time, it's like that Venn diagram does not have a very big overlap of the people who could cook and also write. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... Um, the chicken or egg conversation, I was fascinated to learn, is not a modern colloquialism, that that dates all the way back to Aristotle. Yes. He was the first to ponder. It was obviously, he was pondering life and what is the beginning of it. So he was the first to ponder which came first, the chicken or the egg, and it sort of has escalated from there. <laughs> and now he's saying, it's like, oh man, like, there's no such thing as an original idea. Now, that's what I've also learned when writing this book. Everyone has written, no one has compiled it in quite a beautiful way, as I have, obviously. <laughs> but there's just, chicken, the history is endless, and so many people have covered it in so many ways. You could approach it from so many angles, and it's quite the long human history with this bird. So. so tell me one of your favorite anecdotes that you came upon in the researching of this book. Uh, so one of the craziest, I think, was the saga of chicken eyewear. I don't know if you read that section. Well, so when chickens get together, they they like to establish a pecking order. That's where that term comes from. They literally peck at each other to establish the hierarchy in their flocks. And um, a lot of times chickens can get really violent. I don't know if your chickens have ever killed each other. Um, but they... We haven't had them kill each other, but we can't. I have to actually foster home my... F- I have four surviving chickens. I had a bit of a coyote or fox incident a few weeks oh. ago. So it's a, long, it's a long and really... D- d- I learned a lot of lessons as an amateur farmer last, uh, oh, last yeah, month. Yeah, I've never raised chickens. But from the literature on chickens, <laughs> um, apparently... So they'll peck each other. Sometimes they will kill each other. So obviously it's not good for farmers and their profit. So one of the ways they developed to stop chickens from pecking each other was to put sunglasses on them. So you look into these archives of all these chickens wearing sunglasses because if you use a red lens or you make them partially blind, for some reason they're just much more peaceful. That uh, and oof, yes, sorry. No, I just think that that's the idea of a flock of chickens all walking around, and like I'm imagining <laughs> the pictures in like the farm catalog printed that you could order. You're like chicken glasses three thousand. Yeah, so, I mean, they're still around today. Some I know some farmers still use them. I'm not sure how many. And they're called chicken peepers. So if you if you search in farm magazines, you can buy some chicken peepers for your own chickens. They can look really cool. <laughs> so there was also a story that you told about the industry of serving fried chicken out of train windows during the Civil War, which I found really, really fascinating. Yeah, so that... Um, 
there's a great book. If anyone is very interested in the relationship between African Americans who are these people who generally there was a waiter carrier, waiter carriers, what they called. There's a great book called Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, which is what I really owe this story to. Um, it's about the relationship between African Americans and chickens. So essentially, um, back in times of slavery, there obviously was not much opportunities for slaves. Uh, chicken was long considered not a very valuable farm item, so slaves were allowed to own it and raise it. And as a result, a lot of them became entrepreneurs and started selling chicken on the side of the roads and selling them to passengers in rail cars. And there's this one town in Gordonsville, Virginia, that gradually a lot of entrepreneurial African-Americans flocked there, started serving delicious fried chicken, and it eventually became the fried chicken capital of the world. And people would, would flock there themselves just to eat this chicken. I just, I love this, um, this idea that you could, you know, some entrepreneurial people who were not in a position of making their own way through the, uh, you know, through the world that they were living in figured out a way and that the chickens were part of helping them along. Yeah. So how does chicken become so widely eaten? And I, you do a really great job of sort of illustrating how they manage on boats and get around the world. And I'm wondering if you could give us sort of a lightning tour of where did chickens start? Do they come? I believe they came from China, right? Or Southeast Asia? From Southeast Asia. Okay. Um, Vietnam, Thailand. And it's it just chickens are obviously a very useful creature. <laughs> they provide eggs. They provide meat. They provide feathers. Uh, archaeologists actually believe that the chicken was first domesticated for cockfighting. Um, so that was originally why it spread so much. People just loved watching cockfight, apparently. Yeah. Um, and cookery has always kind of been a secondary aspect of chickens, surprisingly, because we eat 90 pounds per person a year. And it wasn't only until very recently that um, there was any economic incentive to do anything but cockfight or eat the chicken's eggs because it's very hard to raise lots of chickens. That, so and 90 pounds per person, if you're a chicken eater, is yeah. that is so... How many birds is that? Like 30, 23. 23. <laughs> so 23 birds per year. Actually, I guess, yeah, because as you say in the book, most people are eating it a couple of nights a week and for a bunch of lunches in between, and I am definitely one of those people. Yeah, people... This is kind of also what inspired me. I don't like chicken, and imagine... One of your, I mean, I don't hate chicken, so it's a little harsh, but imagine one of your least favorite foods is what everyone eats all the time for their main course. Right, so. It's very strange to me, and it's strange that no one else thinks it's strange. I, and I like my go, one of my go to comfort foods is chicken Caesar salad. Like, if I, yeah. I that's my. I, my happy place. <laughs> yeah, see, a lot of people seem to love the chicken and all forms. <laughs> so in the course of writing the book, did you find that you um, would be more or less likely to pursue chicken as a culinary endeavor for yourself? I, I, have, I have tried it, and I've made my more chicken-skilled cooking family cook some of the recipes. And I, I definitely have a greater appreciation for it, but I just, I don't know, there's something about it. Which <laughs> of the recipes? It's my mantra, I can't like it, because I, I wrote in paper. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, I mean, I will say, I slaughtered, when I slaughtered my chickens a few weeks ago, I didn't eat chicken for 
a solid two weeks, 10 days, two weeks, something like that, because it was very like I had spent a lot of time with those yeah, birds. Very intensive labor. So tell me, um, which recipes did you have your family cook? Uh, it was a chicken salad, the very extravagant chicken salad from Delmonico's. Which has a great story, too, because of the transport of the chicken meat, right? Yeah, so contrary to what most people think now, is chicken salad is a delicate thing that I don't, I don't know if anyone actually eats it anymore. But in the late 19th century, it was a very hip food. All these rich people all flocked to eat chicken salad. It was at, you look at these, all these historical menus, and it's on everyone. Balls, chicken salad, inaugurations, people ate chicken salad, the fanciest restaurant. Chicken salad was the dish du jour, and it was largely because the chickens were just not very good. <laughs> so the only way to really serve them would be to mince it up. And there's only a few preparations of that time that are good, and chicken salad is one. And I think chicken croquettes is another one. But it's all because of the the technology of transport just wasn't there. Right, and so the bad chicken might mince it and cover it with other things. And they were shipped on ice, but they had their innards intact, right? Uh, Initially. So that was a big debate because, obviously, medicine was not as advanced as it is today. And... The debate whether chicken could kill you. The food poisoning was actually a very dangerous thing. In the 19th century, again, if you look at any newspapers, probably weekly somebody will die from eating chicken. It's very dangerous. And so there's a big debate between hotel men whether they should kill the chicken right away in the farm and then send it to the city, or they should wait and then kill it and then take out all the organs. Just on public health, no one knew which was the proper way until 1915 when the U.S. government decided that we will keep the innards inside. Whatever our research has said has determined that this is the fittest for our people. So that's, that's the story of chicken gut. <laughs> that, I, I mean, and when you think about how much has changed in terms of handling chickens and now they're like, I mean, how, do you know how many people get sick from eating bad chicken now? Uh, I don't know the exact number. I know it's in much smaller. Right. See, I, the problem with food outbreaks these days is they're just much easier to transmit just because our food system is much more interconnected. So a single contamination can infect people in four to five states. But it's definitely nowhere near as prevalent as in the 19th century. If you, if you ate a bat, people died from getting chicken bones stuck in their throats, and then they just couldn't get it out, and that was the cause of death. So there were a lot of ways chicken could kill you. Man, and this is why the average age, like the average lifespan was like 40 years yeah. old. <laughs> We've learned so much. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk more with Emmeline Rood, author of Taste Like Chicken. And this is an untitled track by our former intern, Malcolm. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Peter Kim, the executive director of MOFAD, the Museum of Food and Drink. We're a nonprofit founded by Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues here on the Heritage Radio Network. And we want to take people on a learning adventure through the world of food. 
We just opened MoFad Lab, our gallery space at 62 Bayard Street in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where we are currently showing Flavor, Making It and Faking It. Flavor features some very cool sensory interaction. Flavor tablets deliver tastings of vanilla and umami, and the Willy Wonka-inspired smell synth lets you compose over half a million different flavors. So come on by and visit MoFad Lab. We're open five days a week, and tickets are $5 for kids and $10 for adults. Learn more about the Museum of Food and Drink at mofad.org. Welcome back to Sharp and Hot, everyone. I am Emily Peterson, your host. Joining me by phone is author and food writer Emily Rood, who has a new book out called Taste Like Chicken, the History of America's Favorite Bird. So bring us into modern times. How did chicken go from being chicken salad to being chicken McNuggets? <laughs> well, we can owe chicken nuggets to a man named Robert Baker, who's actually a food scientist at Cornell. Um, I had the opportunity of actually going to the Cornell archives and looking at Robert Baker's paper, which was quite the experience because this man literally invented almost every processed chicken item you can think of. Chicken are they, burgers. Are these him, things patented? Hmm? Are there patents associated with his inventions? No, that's the crazy thing. The chicken, processed chicken is a multi-billion dollar industry. Just think of how many people eat chicken nuggets or chicken wings, chicken sausages, chicken bologna. It's all Robert Baker, and he just gave all his ideas away for free. He was an academic. He just wanted the world to be able to eat more chicken because his aim was to increase chicken consumption, not for consumers particularly, but because farmers raising chickens had such low margins on their profits. But he wanted to find a way to both sell more chicken and to use the bits of the chicken that no one else was eating, like the necks and the backs. So he invented all these crazy products that most people eat probably once or twice a week. And yet, ironically, the processed chicken industry has siphoned more money away from the chicken farmers, right? Yeah, so this is kind of a touchy issue. I'm sure if you've seen the, that John Oliver piece about chicken farmers and their rights. Um, so chicken farming is not very profitable. I know all these big chicken companies are making billions of dollars in profits. But the margins are very, very small just because the margins on chickens themselves are very small. And oftentimes the market, it's very volatile because there's just so many chickens being produced that there's no guarantee that a given bird will make profit. So they enter into these things called contract farming agreements where the, the farmers own nothing except for the chicken houses and their labor. And the big vertical integrated companies are the companies that own the slaughterhouses and the chick hatcheries and and all of that jazz, they will come, provide the growers with chicks, the growers will grow them, and then the company will come back to pick up those birds at the end of their lives and slaughter them and take care of all of that. So in some ways, it's very beneficial because it protects farmers from a very volatile market that is not profitable at all. But at the same time, be social theory, uh, it alienates the worker from their labor. <laughs> so they don't they don't own anything in the process. So uh, chicken farmers make very little money, even though they're raising hundreds of thousands of birds a year just because the company owns all the birds and all the risks and all of this. 
I didn't realize that the f- birds were taken away from the farmers still alive, although now in hindsight, of course they are. That makes perfect sense that it would be. And um, I don't know if you've touched on this in the book. Uh, the F Is it the FDA or the USDA is considering approving allowing chickens to be shipped to China for processing and then shipped back without being labeled? Oh, I do not. I did read some of that. I don't cover that in the book, but the U.S. chicken trade... That chapter was one of the most eye-opening. I have a whole chapter about the U.S. chicken in the world, just seeing the sights. Um, but the U.S. chicken trade, we are very defensive of our trade, and we ship our birds basically to every corner of the earth. We're one of the, we are the biggest exporter of chicken on the planet, and it's a very important industry to us. <laughs> so as someone, you know, my, myself who wants to know where my food is coming from, do you think that I am on the right track of raising my own birds or am I just, preve- you know, uh, sort of um, putting off the inevitable? I will say when half my flock was annihilated by a predator yeah. a few weeks <laughs> ago, my husband and I had this long conversation like, man, it, I, to firsthand experience what people must have felt like when industrial food became a thing that I could just go to, like I have the ability to just drive down to the the supermarket and pick up dinner. Had it been 1850, we would have been screwed. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm, you know, I, I, I want to raise my own chickens. I enjoy the process. I enjoy knowing all of, all of the elements of their life. The first flock that I raised was for, to see if I had sort of the constitution to do it. Could I kill these things that I raised from babies? Um, turns out, yes. Um, and the <laughs> second flock now that I'm receiving next week, that's going to be to calculate exactly how much it costs to raise a chicken. So... Yeah, I'm purchasing the chicks from a hatchery, uh, but I'm going to keep track of all of the food input, um, my water bill, the electricity for the brooder, all of that stuff so that I can figure out like and I I will say anyone who I've talked to will say you don't want to know. Yeah, what kind of chicks are you getting? I'm just interested. Um, Yeah, I'm getting a breed called uh, Red Rangers, which are a heritage breed. So I know, and if actually you may want to talk about this more than me, but the the, uh, meat bird that most people are raising is either a Cornish cross or a jumbo cross. I'm going for a heritage breed that will walk around and act and look like a chicken. Do you want to sort of talk (laughs) about what a a traditional meat bird's life looks like? So a traditional meat bird today, this is very new, this is only since the 1950s, 1960s, is a broiler bird. So traditionally, there were multiple types of chicken. Uh, of course, there's all the species. I mean, not species, all the different breeds. But traditionally, you would eat a chicken according to its age. So you have the broiler, which is the youngest, six to eight weeks. Then you have the fryer, which is a little bigger. You eat that fried. And then you have the roaster, so obviously the big chicken, a few months old, and you'd roast that. And then you'd have stewing hens. Today, we don't have any more of that because most chickens only live to be about six weeks old. I tell people that, and they look at me like I'm, I I say, like, they think that I raise these chickens for years and years and years. (laughs) No, they, with the breeding and nutrition behind it, these chickens get fat so fast. Their, Their growth actually sometimes outpaces their skeleton's ability to hold them up. So they will just collapse under their own body weight. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, if a, if a human grew as fat as fast as a chicken, a two-month-old baby that was six pounds at birth would be 660 pounds, which is Holy absurd. cow. Wait, say that one more. A two-month-old baby, 
Say that one so more time. If a, if a baby was born six pounds in two months, if it grew as fat as fast as a chicken, it would be 660 pounds. That's incredible. So when we were looking at the different varieties of birds that you can raise yourself, my husband did not want to deal with birds out there that had gone lame and would need to be killed because they couldn't walk anymore. And I will say my father yeah. has raised, like I've seen him raise uh, Cornish crosses and they, they look like oven stuffer roasters with wings. Like I think there's a pastoral, yeah, they're, huge. they're huge and their breasts are huge and they're white and they don't move. They just stand there on these like <laughs> giant legs and they're as dumb as hammers. Um, yeah. So we wanted something a little bit more, a little bit closer to a wild, not, not a wild animal, but a little bit more behaviorally. Like a chicken. Like a chicken, <laughs> exactly. And so we went with the corner, or with the, uh, excuse me, with the Red Rangers because um, they have a, they have the, you know, a interest in walking around and eating grass and eating bugs, and that will contribute to, I think, a healthier, you know, protein. Um, mm-hmm. But it, you also have to feed them for twice as long. So they live, yeah. you slaughter them at 12 weeks instead of six weeks. Yeah, the raising birds like that, again, it's not really a cost comparison. There's no way a small farmer can compete with these giant industrial farms. They're just so efficient. They do. I mean, obviously, there's externalities and a lot of negative effects that come with it. But to produce cheap, fat meat in a very little time, these companies are very good at it. It's incredible. For- the price of chicken today has not budged, even with inflation, since 1950. So that's how well they're raising it very efficiently it's i mean it's amazing and it's also kind of grotesque i think <laughs> yeah i mean it depends on how you view it like if you just want cheap meat for your table this is a great if you wanted a chicken who's run around it'll take longer it'll be more expensive and so it's what you prioritize actually yeah and ma'am, what a deep topic. We are out of time, but I could talk oh. so much about the politics of what we have available to put in our bodies. But for now, the book is Taste Like Chicken. Emmalyn Rood, thank you so much for coming on Heritage Radio Network. It is published. Yeah, thank you for having me. Published by Pegasus. You also write for Time and for Vice. Um, do you cover food and chickens for those outlets as well? Uh, I, I cover mainly food history. That's and um, If I had the... I, I don't have the... Um, attention span to study history but it was one of the careers that I didn't do that I wonder what how my life would have been different if I'd pursued food history so I'm glad that you do and you make an incredibly readable story that I can tag along with so thank you so much yeah thank you next week on the show um I set myself up for that sentence and I don't know where I was going oh my friend's going to come on and talk about her travel thing. Uh, she's got a new company uh, about food travel and food uh, in Vermont. I'm very excited about that. Um, also, I got a really funny, sharp and hot hashtag usage that I'm, I don't know what to do. So normally when someone uses the hashtag sharp and hot, it's a picture of food. And the other hashtags surrounding sharp and hot are like, you know, uh, hashtag yum, hashtag dinner, hashtag whatever. And like sometimes you'll, you guys will tag me in them and I'll know uh, that it's me. This is the first time that it is a picture of a guy and all of his um his hair i guess he changed his hair uh so he went from having long dark curly hair to having shorter blonder hair um hashtag great experience hashtag mr universe hashtag change of haircut hashtag sharp and hot and then when i clicked on this guy 
he has 20,000 followers. Um, so I don't know if I should, I mean, I guess I should reach out to him and say, hey, you use the Sharpenot hashtag. Here's a cookbook. Or if I should just let it lie. I don't know. Um, I guess I'll see. What I, sh- I, I guess I'll see. What do you think, David? What should I do? I'd have, to, I'd have to take a look at his profile. I don't know. I can't really tell. Oh, but there is some food here. He's got a picture of a, a Yule log, like a Christmas bouche de Noël. Maybe I'll reach out to so him and be is, like... he's describing himself as sharp and hot? Is that the thing? I think so. <laughs> I think that's what happened there. Uh, he has a lot of pictures of himself. And he's not... I mean, he's a very attractive Jim, man. Jim Tan laundry? Kind of. Yeah. There's a lot of him getting his hair cut. Maybe he's a model? I can't I can't tell. Maybe I should email him. Maybe we should get him on the show. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so thank you so much everyone for listening. Sharp and Hot is produced by Heritage Radio Network, a nonprofit member-supported radio station devoted to all things food. Help keep Heritage Radio Network alive by becoming a member today. Go to heritageradionetwork.org. Click on the beating heart to donate and show us some love. Thank you to David for engineering the show. Thank you to Pete, nice Peter, Pichukov for the theme song. Keep in touch with me on Twitter and Instagram at Chef Emily P. You can email me, Chef Emily at sharpenhot.com. If you're interested in more of the background on my raising of these meat birds, if you go to ediblelongisland.com, I wrote a whole series called The Chick Dispatches about my first run through of raising baby chicks. And so you can read all seven, actually, all six. I have to write story number seven. It's in my head. I just have to sit down and write it. Um, but if raising chickens is something you're interested in, I will give you a completely transparent look at what it was like, including the day that the fox slash coyote came and slaughtered half my birds. Uh, If you're like, no, thanks, I don't need that closeness with my food, that's cool too. I will be here next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, go to iTunes, give us a good rating. And until next week, everyone, keep playing with fire and knives. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.